Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Wake me up before you go, go to listen to do to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Hello, my name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. Give us 60 minutes and perhaps indeed we will give you a raw bone podcast. Sure. There are some good podcasts out there, but I believe firmly that there is only one wicked good pro wrestling podcast out there, and it's Stick to Wrestling. I'll tell you what, let's have no less than Hulk Hogan weigh in. Hulk, is this the only wicked good podcast out there? We've had some very emotional responses to that question over the last few weeks, and I guess Hulk had to jump on that bandwagon. Now... Following up on last week when we did the bottom top 10 managers of the 80s, we are going to leap out of that cocoon of negativity and do our top 10 with our friend. He's known as Tamale. He's also known as Max Levy. Max, thanks for coming on again. Hey, thanks for having me back. I guess I, I must have done something right the last time uh, <laughs> if, I, if I get to do this over. So there you go. How would you like to be the other guy in Wham when George Michael says, hey, I'm leaving for a solo career? That must have been like a comical situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Andrew Ridgely seemed like a nice guy and all, but it was very clear that he wasn't doing a whole lot as far as the music side of things were going there. He was definitely riding the coattails. You know what? I'm going to forget his name because I like to refer to him as the other guy in Wham. The other guy in Wham is good enough. That's what he has on his business cards, I'm sure. <laughs> check check the website, theothergryfromwham.com. I'm, Matt- I'm getting that URL if he doesn't have it. <laughs> Max, before we got on the air, you mentioned that you had a Memphis story that you wanted to share with our populace, the Stick to Wrestling universe. All right. It's a, it's a short story, and it's one of those stories that you know, comes from the, uh, the, the urban legend file of professional wrestling. So I'm not sure you know, just how accurate it is, but I'm, I'm hoping that it's true. Uh, this is a manager who's not in my top 10. He, I guess he's not in yours either. Ronnie P. Gossett, who... Got quite a a bit of play there, circa you know eighty nine ninety, and uh, I think he hung on a little bit longer. It looked like at one point that he might end up with Jeff Jarrett when he brought the Double J gimmick to the WWF. I think he was uh, in the uh, some of those uh, vignettes as his driver. But yes. you know what I've heard about him is that he was you know a real wheeler dealer, real con artist kind of guy. And I've always heard somewhere, and I guess I've never heard what it, exactly what the promotion was, but I've heard that he actually sold an indie promotion to somebody that he didn't actually own, but managed to get this guy to believe that he did own it and then collected payment for it and and disappeared into the night. It is a story about Memphis wrestling. There's an excellent chance that could be true. I mean, those guys, especially in the 90s, those guys lived like gypsies, tramps, and thieves, man. Yeah, I mean, you had to, I guess you had to have some kind of a racket if you were going to make it because the Minimum payoff was, uh, I think, $40, and that wasn't going to take you very far, even in 1990. Oh, I personally knew guys in the 90s who got their start in Memphis, and they saved their money. They went down to Memphis, and when the money was out, they came home. Yeah, yeah. I seem to think we we, we talked about it at one point. I want to say somebody like Ray Odyssey or, or Chris Candido kind of fit that realm, somebody from up in the Jersey area that went down there. Yeah, I mean, you did you did not make money in Memphis in the 90s unless your name was Jerry Lawler or Bill Dundee or Jerry Jarrett. Mm-hmm, absolutely. But, 
You know, you know what? I mean, I say that, and it's like anything else. I mean, I'm sure before Kiss or U2 hit it big, I mean, they were, you know, not making money playing Chinese restaurants or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things, you know, you go to Memphis not for the money, but you go for, you know, the regular work because you know that they've got, you know, four cities that they're doing every week. And then the other three days, they have other towns that they run in and out in the spot shows. And, you know, you get a chance to work on a professionally produced TV program that, you know, was known for giving guys a lot of mic time, known for running a lot of angles. So, you know, if you were, you know, somebody from the Northeast who didn't really have a profile and you wanted to get your name out there, you know, the aftermags covered uh, the, the territory, especially, you know, as the you know, 80s turned to the 90s and there weren't a lot of territories left to cover. They gave Memphis more and more ink and photographs. You know, it was a great way to, to get your name out and get the, the WWF and WCW to see you. And, you know, maybe, you know, you move up from there. Oh, yeah, that's that's exactly what it was for the exposure. I mean, you get on TV, you get TV time, mic time, and now you come home with that tape that you can send to the WWF, that you can send to WCW, which is what everyone I know worked Memphis did. Yeah, and you've worked, you know, six, you know, five, six, seven nights a week for several months, and you've got a chance to hone your craft that, you know, you're not going to get if you're just, you know, a, a weekend warrior, you know, doing the indies up in the Northeast where you'll do, you know, Friday night, Saturday night, you know, maybe a Sunday afternoon or something. And then during the week, you're not, you know, working those dates the way you would down in that territory. I had someone ask me, they got a gig in Memphis and they called me and like, you know, they were like, hey, can you give me any advice? I'm like, yes, do not pick up any bad habits down there. <laughs> I can this, believe it. This was, this was 82. Yeah. But anyway, top 10 managers of the 1980s and more. Max, who was your number 10? Well, my number 10 was somebody that I didn't get to experience in the moment because you know, he was already uh, deceased by the time the WWF went national, although it wasn't long beforehand. I picked the Grand Wizard, picked it for a few reasons. You know, he was, you know, the mouthpiece for the Sheik in Detroit before he went to the WWF. And he would go back there from time to time when he was in the WWF to, to do that. And then in the WWF, you know, he could certainly talk. He was generally given the most serious contenders for the title. You know, he was the guy that got Valentine that got the title with Graham, that had Morocco the first time around, that got Slaughter when they were pushing him hard. And he always managed to get his guys over and, and put them in a good position to be draws against Backlund or Andre or whoever they were pushing him against. And he did this without taking bumps and without really getting physically involved at all, but he still managed to get the, the heat and, and get the guys over. Grand Wizard, uh, I had him at number seven. Uh, I probably would have had him higher had he been around for more than three and a half years. And you know, actually more like four and a half, but still. Like you said, he was the guy who had the credibility. He got the Greg Valentines. He got the Magnificent Morocco's first time around when he was slim and trim. And, you know, he was the top manager. But the expression my friends had were Albano gets the tag teams, Blassie gets the foreign guys, and Wizard gets the guys who are good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had a nice little system going there. Every once in a while, they deviate from it. But you could generally tell, you know, based on on the wrestler, who he was going to end up with. And it's interesting because some Grand Wizard guys, you know, the blonde-haired nature boy types could end up with Blassie. And some of Blassie's freaks could end up with Albano. But it was interesting. You would never really see a Wizard guy and, a, and an Albano guy kind of go back and forth. Blassie was sort of the, the comfortable middle. 
Yeah, the, the only guy I can think of off the top of my head that was managed by both Albano and the Wizard. Oh, wait, Blackjack Mulligan, too. So Blackjack Mulligan and Greg Valentine's the only guy I can think of. Yeah, and I think had a chance with everybody. But, I mean, that was a totally different deal just because, you know, he's a guy who kind of homesteaded and would just come in every year, every other year for the summer. Yeah, that's right. He was he was with the Wizard, too. But then again, that was when his gimmick was way tamed down compared to mm-hmm. what it was in the 80s. One thing about the Grand Wizard, you mentioned that he never took bumps. He never got physically involved. There was only one time where I ever saw Grand Wizard get physically involved in anything. That's when Greg Valentine wrestled Chief J. Strongbow on TV, and they did a thing where they crashed into each other, and they were both unconscious on the mat. And Grand Wizard got up and poured a pitcher of water over Greg Valentine's head to revive him. That's the, the single time I've ever seen it. But I'll bet it, it meant something because it was the only time and because it was in a, a big match, Valentine and, and Strongbow having the big feud. It wasn't like some guys who would do it all the time and you, you wouldn't even remember it or think anything of it. I loved that finish, and I'm shocked I never saw anyone copy it. I thought that was really creative. Yeah, no, that, that is a good one. I, I, now that you mention it, I don't remember seeing it anyplace else. And it's not too late. Somebody ought to borrow it one of these days. <laughs> I think it is. It might be too late. I don't know. Yeah, but it could be. It could be. My number 10, and this might be a surprise to some people, I would have had him way higher if he had a longer run. By the way, I didn't mention coming in. If you didn't hear the show last week, we're doing managers, not valets. Guys like Ernie Ladd, who was you know managed for a couple of months, or Eddie Gilbert, who was a semi-manager, they don't count. And what does count is longevity, impact, and how much we appreciated the manager in question. My number 10 was Lord Alfred Hayes, who was absolutely great in Florida in 1980 and early 1981. And he was never able to capture that that again. He went to Mid-Atlantic and he just wasn't the same guy. Then he went to the WWF and we know what he did there. Max, have you ever seen Lord Alfred Hayes in Florida? You know, I've seen uh, just a little bit of his Florida work, just, you know, whatever is on YouTube that I was able to see some of it actually while while researching to do this list. You know, he was in the AWA for a little while. It was actually 77 to about 1980. And at the end, he turned babyface, actually. He had been the heel manager for several years. And then when Heenan came back from Georgia, you know, Heenan stole the, the Super Destroyers from from Hayes and that you know, led to Hayes, you know, becoming a baby face and teaming with Crusher against Eden's crew. You know, I didn't see a ton of him in the AWA when at the time, you know, that was when I was at my earliest stage of, of fandom and wasn't a regular watcher and, and hadn't kind of pieced it all together. I thought he was pretty good. I have him not in my top 10, but closer to the top 10 than the bottom 10 by a good stretch. All right. Yeah, he was, like I said, it was a a very short run. It was like a a year, year and a half, and he just wasn't the same after that. You know what? I said that about Bobby Jaggers, too. A lot of the guys weren't the same after leaving Florida and being under Eddie Graham and Dusty Rhodes' thumb. Yeah, yeah. You know, you had two excellent bookers there, and that promotion knew how to produce TV. And I know that Hayes, I think, I want to say before Hayes wound up in the WWF, after leaving Florida, he went to... He's, as you mentioned, he went to Crockett, but I think it was post-George Scott when Ole had taken the book and things were a little less focused, and then he ended up in Central States, which was not much of uh, of a territory, and pays to have a good booker, pays to have a good TV producer to kind of help these guys 
find their way and find their their character and you know when you don't have that focus it can it can fall off yeah exactly i mean i wish he had just you know maintain that blueprint that had already been supplied for him but that's not just not the way it went who did you have at your number nine my number nine is sticking with the wwf classy freddie blassie i thought he had a another guy who had a lot of longevity who had a lot of big stars who he got over and you know a lot of them as you noted earlier were the foreign heels or the big monster heels to where blassie really was going to have to carry the load as far as the talking was concerned and I thought he did a good job. He hung on into the expansion era. They kind of retired him in the middle of 86. I think he you know, was ready probably to be done. He didn't want to go. They wanted managers who could go on on the road to all the house shows. And I think Blassie at that point just did TV in the garden. And you know, they wanted guys who could get physically active. And I think Blassie had done a little bit of getting involved earlier on. But by that stage, you know, apart from throwing the cane into the ring, he wasn't going to get into the ring and interfere, take bumps. And so they moved him aside. But I thought he was a great talker and he had a lot of, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, is a lot of presence in, in the role and, and people believed in him as a threat. I also had Fred Blassie as number nine. Um, I thought All he right. did a really I didn't think he was a great manager, but I thought he was a very good manager and he had an important role and he was around, you know, he was around for six and a half, seven years. I thought he did a great job as the cranky, cantankerous and really loud old man. And you're right. He had a lot of responsibility because he had, for a lot of his charges, he had to do all of the talking, whereas Wizard and Albano only need to do some of the talking. Yeah, exactly. And he's renowned as one of the all-time great talkers. So if you've got to have somebody in that role, that was the guy to go with. Yeah, you had mentioned, too, when he retired in 86, I remember right before, right before this happened, I started noticing, like, wow, Fred Blass, he's getting old. He's wearing, you know, he's he, now he's got to wear really thick glasses. And you could tell he was having a hard time getting around. And maybe a month after I made this observation, wow, this guy named Slick is coming to co-manage with Fred Blassie. And I'm not saying I knew everything, but I knew exactly what that meant, that Fred Blassie was on his way out. And it was a little bit sad because I had been watching him on WWF TV for over 10 years at that point, And I knew right away he was going to be gone soon. And literally, I think the next taping, Slick was managing like Volkoff and whoever else. And Blasi was completely out of the picture. Yeah, it was very strange, too, because, you know, they bring Slick in. They now Slick and Blasi are co-managers. They do some interviews together. You know, they did a, a gimmick where they would both bring the wrestlers to ringside, but Blasi would go to the back and Slick would stay there to kind of pass the torch. And then even though they were supposed to be co-managers and Blassie had sold half of his stable to Slick, suddenly Blassie just wasn't there anymore and wasn't even mentioned. And the whole co-managing thing was completely dropped. Not even, I think, a comment along the lines of, you know, Slick bought the other half of the stable and, you know, Freddie's taking his riches back to Beverly Hills or something. <laughs> I mean, I understand that that's the thing. He's, he's been a heel all that time. And you can't retire a guy like that, send him off in a blaze of glory the way a real sport would. It's pro wrestling. You just can't. Right, right. Uh, I, I, I get you. I remember Jesse Ventura in a shoot setting was talking about how he was you know, almost borderline insulted that he was going to be managed by Fred Blassie in the WWF because Jesse was an excellent talker and he definitely was. It was just the way things were done in the WWF. I've probably said that, used that anecdote before on the show. If I have, I apologize. 
But that's what he had to understand. That's the way it went in the WWF. If you didn't have a manager, you weren't a star. No, exactly. I think on the the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page, if I'm thinking it correctly, there was a question along the lines of who was a big WWF star, WWF star from the early to mid-70s into the pre-expansion era that did not have a manager. And other than Zabisco, I can't think of, of anybody off the top of my head. And if there was anybody else, we would still have be able to count them on one hand and have fingers left over. It's like you said, that, that was the format. The managers stayed. They built the guys up before they came in. And then, you know, when it was time for the guy to cycle out and the next guy to come in, they would start building up that guy. It's just that was the, the formula and it worked for years and years. Yeah, it, it definitely was. Larry Zabisco was the only like even mid-card heel who did not have a manager and his circumstances were just way different than anybody else's. Yep, absolutely. Although it might have been interesting to have, well, yeah, you know what? I, I was talking off the top of my head. It would have been interesting to have Larry completely sell out and go with like a Lou Albano. But as I think about that, like, no, they totally did the right thing, keeping the focus on Bruno and Larry and having Larry do all of the talking on his interviews. Yeah, and Larry, as a heel interview, you know, I'll bet that was kind of a revelation back then because. Everything I've seen of him from that babyface era beforehand is as bland as white toast. You know, there's yeah. just nothing happening there. No, he was, you know, I was shocked when he turned heel. I, you know, they had the match coming up with Bruno and I mean, I was young, but I should have seen a heel turn coming and it just did. It didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't, uh, I'm, I'm sure based on how he was positioned, you wouldn't think, you know, this guy's going to turn on, on Bruno and then they're going to have a Shea stadium match in front of 35,000 people. Uh, yeah. Probably didn't uh, even even occur to anybody but then it, it happened you know because he was good enough to do it and he didn't need somebody to do the talking for him no exactly and it kept the issue personal so we had the same number nine who did you have as number eight my number eight was sir oliver humperdinck who you know he's the guy that was around for a long time he got around i mean he's mostly identified as being a florida guy but he uh worked in florida he worked in crockett he worked in Mid-South for a while. He was in Montreal in the 70s, in Los Angeles in the 70s. And he was sort of a good, kind of in that Albano sort of way, not quite as extreme or over the top, but he was just sort of a good sleazeball. You know, yeah. the, sort of the sleazy, big fat dude, the Hawaiian shirts, the sunglasses, you know, the the kind of jive rap that he would do sometimes. And he knew how to get people to hate him. And he was not afraid to basically get his rear end handed to him by Dusty or whoever the babyface was when the time came. I also had Sir Oliver Humperdinck at number eight. For a long time, I've wondered, I mean, he was the top guy in Florida, late 70s into the early 80s. And have you ever heard about like there being a fallout between he and Eddie Graham? Because he was conspicuous by his absence. And I know he came back in 84. But it was just weird having him kind of drifting around. You know, he was in central states at one point, as opposed to being in a, in a big money territory like Florida. That's interesting. You know, this is, I think, the first time I've ever heard that anecdote about him and Graham having uh, some sort of a falling out. It, I guess now that you mention it, it is odd that he faded out of there. I don't know if it was a personal issue or if there was some sort of a change of booker or or what, but. Yeah, it's odd that he would be so big there and then just completely gone for years and years. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was just speculation <laughs> on my part, and it's very possible that they were just going with J.J. Dillon. That could be it. And 
Dylan was outstanding and a, and a good kind of change of pace character from what Humperdinck was. And one interesting Sir Oliver Humperdinck thing, I never knew this for until years after he was retired. He's actually from here in the Twin Cities. I had never uh, known that, you know, because he never worked in the AWA and he never was identified in any way as, as being from here. From what I understood, he wanted to be able to, once he broke into the business and, and made a name for himself elsewhere, he wanted to be able to come home and be around his family and just live a normal life without having to worry about insane fans, you know, stepping up to him in, in public. So he never uh, worked up here, was never publicized as being a manager up here. And when his career ended, he just came back here and just sort of lived a, a quiet life until he, he died a few years ago. Yeah. And originally when I was putting this list together, I had him right outside the top 10. And then I, I came to remember how good he was in Mid-South, even though it was a uh, not terribly long run, but I thought he was really good in that role. Watts used him correctly. Yeah, no, I, he did really well there. And, you know, it's odd. We we never got Florida up here until really the, the bitter end. So my first exposure to him on any regular basis was, you know, we got Mid-South, the Power Pro Wrestling show on an obscure cable channel called Tempo that has long since vanished from existence. And, you know, I remember watching it because, you know, you'd see guys on there that you'd see in the magazines that weren't in the AWA or weren't on the shows that we could get on TV up here. And sometimes you would see him and you'd think, wow, that's it. You know, you'd be kind of disappointed in him. I remember seeing him think, oh, yeah, you know, he, this guy is good. This is a big deal. So I understand why he's getting all the publicity. I, too, was started getting Florida wrestling. I got Florida wrestling in like 80, 81, and then it went off that TV channel. And then it came back on Boston Sports Channel, like you said, like right at the bitter end, like middle of 86, this starts airing. And I get all excited. Yo, championship wrestling from Florida. And I know the roster has been depleted, but I just didn't realize like the quality of that show went, oh man, went down the drain. Yeah. Yeah. They just, you know, some of the problem with it, well, there were two, a lot of problems, but you know, when you're, you have a promotion that's been filled in the past with good workers, even guys in the middle and downward, you know, who were, you know, competent and could work a match. And then that era from mid 86 onwards, maybe even a little beforehand. You know, you've got so many of these younger green guys who, you know, they're just not uh, up to snuff. Maybe someday they could get better, and some did. And some guys just didn't have the the goods at all, but they were available. And then you had guys like, I'm thinking late 86 here, like Hacksaw Higgins, who'd never been pushed anywhere, getting pushes there. And he didn't get pushed elsewhere for, for very good reason. And then the <laughs> problem is, you know, they don't have guys who can work matches, but they're still booking the show to have these guys wrestle like they can work good matches. And then at the same time, you know, they run a lot of angles. And, and sometimes when you've got a, a depleted talent base, you know, running angles to try to get something heated up is a good idea. But again, you don't have the guys with the talent to pull it off. No. And I also remember, as a matter of fact, I think it was August, September of 86, I started getting the show. And you're right, you know, angles are fun, but it's like anything else in wrestling. The, the less they're used, the more effective they are. And they were running like, I mean, four or five angles per show. You know, it was just too much. Yeah, yeah, the old throw it at the wall and see what sticks idea. And sometimes, though, like you say, you, know, you run so many angles, they don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> and I, I mentioned, you know, I got it like, you know, towards the end of summer 86, because I would be like, well, at least Barry Windham's here and he's really good. And then like uh, maybe three or four weeks later, he debuts on WTBS. I'm like, oh my, oh my God, there's <laughs> no one in Florida. He knew when to get out. Max, who did you have at number seven? I went with Paul E. Dangerously. I was kind of debating whether or not to 
move him from number seven downward, maybe even out of the top 10, because he got into managing, I think, like at some point in 86 and really kind of got noticed in 87. And then, you know, he's in Memphis for a while. He's in the AWA for a while. He goes to Crockett when it's going down the drain towards the sale to Turner. And then he's with you know WCW in 89 when they had some good stuff going on, but it wasn't really drawing. So he, he never really drew the big money the way that Blassie and the way that the Wizard did. But, you know, I don't really blame him for it because it's not like he was around 80, 81, 82, 83, when you, know, you could go to all these different territories and, and make big money and, and flopped. I mean, he was in a position that I don't think anybody could really succeed in to a great extent. Even like a lot of the Memphis stuff was from Rich and Idol. I know this sounds weird. I'm running the guy down and he's number seven. But the point is that he was extremely talented and he had a good mind for the business, sometimes almost too good with the insider references, but still a good mind for the business. and the fans legitimately hated him. And I have no doubt that if he had gotten an earlier start, that he would have been even bigger because he would have been in a position to succeed. I had Paulie dangerously at number five. He got off to a late start. I hadn't seen him. I know he was doing like little things on Indies and in Florida in 86. But when he came to Memphis in 87, and we talked about this last week, there's a rotating door of managers in Memphis, but Paulie really stood out as a guy who, I mean, I laid my eyes on him and I thought I was looking at a future star and more on that in a minute. But I mean, when he was managing, you know, he was in the middle of the idol and rich versus Lawler feud. I thought he was really effective in that role, even though he was clearly standing behind idol and rich, but then he was managing Jack Hart and Chick Donovan, they were a tag team for a little while in Memphis, and I thought he made them stand out. He made me think, okay, wow, these guys are going to be something at least on a Memphis level. If you had asked me December 31st, 1989, like, what do you think Paul Lee's future is going to be? My answer would have been he is going to be a star in this business. I also would have told you, I don't know if it's going to be as a manager but he's going to be a big star in this business. And lo and behold, who dropped ECW on us, but Paulie dangerously. Yeah. If, if you'd asked me that question in 89, I would never have seen ECW coming, but I would have thought that Paulie would have continued down the road of, of being the heel commentator, kind of becoming to WCW what Keenan was in the WWF. And, and the problem with WCW being that, you know, they were constantly changing directions, constantly changing bookers. So sometimes Paul was, very prominently featured on commentary. And then all of a sudden he would completely disappear from commentary and they would hardly use him at all. And then he'd be back and then he'd disappear again. And he never got that continuous uninterrupted run the way that, you know, Heenan and Ventura did in the WWF. And I think, you know, if they had given him that path, he would have turned it to gold. He would have done great in that role. And that's where I probably would have seen him, if not as a manager. And the idea that he would completely revolutionize the business because basically the Attitude era is ECW brought to the WWF to a great extent, and WCW borrowed heavily from ECW, and both of them took tons of talent from him. You know, him revolutionizing things like that, I would not have guessed. To this day, Eric Bischoff denies having been influenced at all by ECW. There was a time where, I mean, we're talking like 99, 2000, he's saying, Oh, I've never watched an episode of ECW. Well, I hope that's not true because number one, it doesn't look true. And number two, if you're running WCW, you better be watching ECW. You better be watching the WWF. Yeah, I can't imagine that that was really true. It's a ridiculous thing for him to have said. I don't know what 
admitting to watching ECW would have done negatively to him. I mean, I don't know if he just simply didn't want to give Paul Heyman the satisfaction of saying that he watched his show or didn't want in any way to somehow confirm that WCW had borrowed in any way from ECW, but it's a preposterous statement. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because it's true. In 1987, after he left Memphis, Paulie went to the AWA, and he was the only reason to watch that show, in my opinion. Every week, they would give him a good four or five minutes on the stick, and he would kill it every single time. Yeah, yeah, he was definitely a bright star in a pretty dull sky there. It's sad. It was already, by that point, pretty much past the point of no return. But yeah, he gave a reason to watch, and it was another guy that was still pretty new in the business. but. He didn't really come off like it. He did come off like somebody that had been at it for a very long time because he was very poised on the mic and and knew what to say and how to say it. Yeah, I mean, and in my opinion, WCW, and I know Paulie had heat with everyone there, like he's had heat with everyone for a long time. But I mean, it was apparent to me from the start that he was being underutilized as just the manager of the original Midnight Express. I mean, in 1989, they gave him the Samoan SWAT team. That's fine. I like the SST a lot. But at that point, to me, it was clear Paulie should have gotten a top heel to manage. I mean, I don't know who, but whoever it was, I thought Paulie would have gotten the guy over. They would have made a great team. The, the guy I always throw out there is Steve Dr. Death Williams, who clearly needed to be a heel and needed <laughs> a manager. But, you know, there's just a ton of guys. I mean, you could have gotten a guy like, oh, what's his name? The guy from Nebraska, Gary Albright, like someone like that. Bring him in with Paulie as as his manager. And and you've got a great team right there. I think they were already planting the seeds for the Dangerous Alliance if it hadn't already started. But I could even see Paul in the spot they put Harley Race in with Luger in 91. Uh, That absolutely would have worked. No disrespect to Harley Race. It would have worked even better, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah, Harley. You know, great talent as a wrestler, pretty serious talker, but I, I never thought much of him as a manager. You see, I, I liked him as a manager. I, I didn't think he was a great talker. If Harley Race is in your corner, you're getting taken a little more seriously because, you know, hey, he's a legend. This is true. Yeah. I mean, he definitely had the credibility that that we can't deny. But like I said, I wouldn't have gone as high as bringing him in with, you know, Luger the night you're playing to make Luger the world's champion. I mean, a little bit further down the trough. Yeah, he was a better fit with Vader than with Luger, that's for sure. He was excellent with Vader. I thought that was a great pairing. I mean, him and Luger just didn't look right together, in my opinion. No, no, because Paul at least had the psycho yuppie thing going, as he called himself, or maybe it was Jim Ross called him at the time. And and that would kind of work with Luger as a preening pretty boy muscle man. And Harley Race, you know, as the big kind of ex-wrestler collute in the suit with Luger, it just wasn't really a, a proper pairing. No, I, I agree with you. So, Max, who did you have as your number six manager of the 80s? My number six, I went with Gary Hart. You know, he's a guy that throughout his career, he went everywhere, did well everywhere. Obviously, most people, when they think of him, they think of world class. But, you know, he had a great run with with Crockett. You know, he worked Georgia. He worked Mid-South a little bit with Kabuki, but he was a regular there in the in the forerunner when McGurk was still in charge, Australia. Yeah, I'm forgetting a, a couple of places. Well, he was in, in Georgia prominently, and he was just a, a great interview. And, you know, sometimes he was a little guilty of you know, maybe putting himself over too strong and sometimes guilty of the sin that a lot of guys have, you know, on the mic when the backstory and the 
point they're making is very clear in their head, but sometimes when it comes out of their mouth to the viewer at home, it isn't quite as clear as they may think it is. But yeah, I thought that you know, he did a, a good job of coming across as a menace and as somebody that people wanted to see get here. And much credit to him for getting his head shaved and then living up to that bald for life stipulation. So. <laughs> I will never stop laughing about the bald for life stipulation. (laughs) (laughs) So Gary Hart, I have heard now Gary Hart. I did not have ranked. He was quite literally the last guy out of my top 10. So I had him at number 11, quite theoretically. And he was the one who eventually got bumped out so that I could get Lord Alfred A's in there. Here's Gary Hart to me. First of all, I have heard that when he was in Florida, In the 1970s, he was untouchable as a manager, and then he had a falling out with Eddie Graham, and he never went back there. Once again, we're talking about when guys leave Florida, the quality of their work goes down. Good Gary Hart was really good, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I thought when he was with Chris Adams in World Class, even as a babyface, I thought that was a perfect pairing. And then when Gary Hart turns out to be the instigator that gets Chris Adams turned, I really liked that, and he looked right with Chris Adams. It was almost like, you know, at first he's a babyface. Okay, here's the guy that's going to get Chris Adams over the top, make him a contender for the World's Heavyweight Championship, and then in the end he turns into a bad influence. No, that was a good angle. I mean, and it worked. Like you said, sometimes the wrestler and the manager don't fit, and this was a case where they fit very well. And then you add Gino Hernandez into the mix for a little while before Chris and Gino broke off and went their own way. And Hart was more with you know one-man gang and, and Lewin and Brooks and so on. I've really never seen, I think, anything of him in Florida. I don't know if any footage of that is on the network or is turned up everywhere. The Florida library is a little little strange just in the way that you know, it exists and has been pieced out in you know, those Mike Graham, Dusty Rhodes home video releases and whatever the WWE has. But I thought that, you know, he was very good in world class in the mid 80s. You know, I thought he did well with Kabuki when they would get out and, and take the outdates in other territories and, you know, liked him in WCW in 89. I, I didn't think that it was necessary for them to put Terry Funk with him, but it still was a combination that I thought worked. I thought putting Terry Funk with Gary Hart was a major mistake on their part because now you were pouring water, you're diluting on the Ric Flair, Terry Funk thing. Terry Funk could speak for himself. I understood, like, you know, why, okay, Gary Hart would be with Terry Funk sometimes because now we've got the Muda dynamic. But Mm -hmm. when I was at the Great American Bash in Baltimore in 89, and when Funk was walking towards the ring with Gary Hart, I mean, we all just kind of groaned. And that's, you know, (laughs) no offense to Gary Hart, but it's like... Oh, sure, sure. I thought it worked better than you did, but I can agree that it wasn't really necessary. Yeah, I, well, well, getting back to world class, my theory, and that's all it is, has always been that, okay, we have Chris Adams and Gino Hernandez. If we split them off from Gary Hart, we can also have the Gary Hart faction of one-man gang Mark Lewin, Killer Brooks. And I, I see that, but at the same time, one can say Gino Hernandez and Chris Adams didn't need Gary Hart. No, they didn't, but I think as a package, it would have been better put together if they had kept Gary Hart with those two. Jay, just my opinion. No, I think that's a good thought, and, and I definitely see where, where you're going with that. Yeah, it's like on the one hand, one man gang needed a manager, and you know Akbar wasn't working there at the time. He was yeah. exclusively for Watts, and so it made sense to split them up on that regard. But yeah, I mean, you know, Hart as the guy that led Chris Adams astray. Then when you're ready to turn Chris back, it isn't just Chris turning on Gino, it's Chris 
turning on Gino and turning on the the guy who you know made him sell his life down the drain for you know money, riches, and Von Eric jealousy and so on. <laughs> I want to say that you may have actually been the one that pointed this out, and then once I looked and realized how correct it was, but Ken Mantell was doing the booking, and you know it's been said that Ken Mantell liked to have the heels going at it, you know, with different heel factions having tension and feuding. And you know, I remember after Adams and Gino broke away, you know, Gary Hart sitting in his patio table, you know, pounding on it, the drinks falling over, talking about how angry he was at Gino and how he was going to get Gino in the ingrate Chris Adams and so on, but he was still a heel. You know, another page out of the Ken Mantell playbook, basically. I remember that interview, and it was Gary Hart at his best. The thing is, now we have to talk about Gary Hart at his worst, which is ultimately what put him out of my top 10. I mean, Gary Hart, you know, sometimes his interviews were good. I liked him in Georgia, by the way, as well. I need to point that out uh, when he was with Kabuki. But sometimes his interviews, like, they didn't make sense, and they were a bit drawn out. They didn't capture my attention, especially when he was with Al Perez in the NWA in, like, 88. And then in 89, this really bothered me. (laughs) I mean, they had the Ric Flair, Terry Funk, I quit match. And Gary Hart would not sell for Ric Flair. And I'm watching that match as it's going on live. I'm like, what is this guy doing? And Ric Flair had to like really lay into him. It's like, hey, pal, you're a manager. You're supposed to sell. You're not supposed to be on a level where you could even think about fighting a guy like Ric Flair. Yeah, yeah, and that's part of the reason why you know I even considered Gary Hart actually higher up the list and then started bringing him down when I thought about things about the interviews not making sense and him having, you know, these elaborate backstories that in his head that you know sometimes he would explain uh and sometimes he wouldn't and would expect us to kind of follow along and there wouldn't be enough information given for us to really get it. And yeah, I've totally forgotten about, you know, the whole deal with him and Flair and that I quit match and yeah, I'm not sure why he would do that other than, you know, I, I think he was one of those managers that was always worried that, you know, if I sell too much for the baby faces, I'm going to lose my heat. And therefore, you know, I've got to just only sell a little bit or not much, or I've got to get my own licks in. And that was definitely one of his shortcomings, to be sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw a clip from, I think it was his own promotion. I think it was San Antonio in like 85, 86, where he's just throwing Scott Casey around. Oh, and yeah, like, yeah. He went, after he left world class in the fall of 85, he went to Texas All-Star for a while as Booker mm-hmm. uh, and at, as the lead heel manager. But I granted the territory was on its, on its ass and he didn't have a whole lot to work with in the talent department. But the top heel manager throwing around, you know, a guy who's one of the top couple baby faces in the promotion. That should not happen. That's what the guy he manages should be doing. Exactly. And I mean, I recently watched a whole bunch of Texas all-star wrestling and I didn't have to ask who the booker was. <laughs> to see no, no. <laughs> the push Gary was given himself. I did not have to ask who the booker was. I have a Gary Hart story. All right. I meet him outside of the Boston Garden. This is July 1989. And I say, Mr. Hart, how are you? Could I get my picture taken with you? Sure thing, kid. Can I get my picture taken with the great Muda? He goes, no, you cannot. And I'm sorry, but nobody has seen the great Muta without his makeup. I'm like, Gary, I've seen him in Florida when he was the white ninja. I've seen tapes of him from Japan. It's okay. I won't show it to anybody. And oh, by the way, it's a hot summer night in Boston, and he's wearing long pants and a, what is this, satin Chicago 
Cubs jacket. Okay, <laughs> so he's dressed like it's the winter. So <laughs> he says to me, he's like, you get tapes from Japan, huh? Now, where you get those? And I'm like, oh, crap, here we go. And I'm like, oh, you know, I, I know people from the newsletters. You read them newsletters, huh? Uh, yeah, Gary. I mean, it's, it's OK. I don't like tell people stuff. And he's like, well, I hope you're not one of those people who think they know everything about the business who's not in the business. I'm like, no, I'm just a fan. And he keeps lecturing me about being a quote unquote <laughs> smart fan, which I did not say anything about it. I just said, no, I get Japan yeah, tapes. That stigma. So like a stupid 23 year old, like I was at the time, 24 year old, we start talking a little baseball and I'm like, oh, so you're a big Cubs fan. He's like, oh yeah. And he starts talking Cubs baseball. I'm like, wait a minute. You don't play baseball. You can't talk about the Cubs. And what a stupid thing to say. He should have smacked me in the head, but he was cool about it. And I got my picture taken with Muda. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I, I don't know where it is, but I got my picture taken with Muda. Well, if and if you ever find that, I think the statute of limitations on showing him without the face paint has expired. So <laughs> feel free to post that photo. I can't do that, Max. If he lived up to the bald for life step, I've got to live up to the picture step. All right. Yeah. Be a man of honor. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Paulie Dangerously was my number five. Who was your number five? My number five, I went with uh, James J. Dillon. Okay. I, I, you know what? I went out of order. J.J. Dillon was my number six, but please go ahead. Oh, sorry. Did I? Uh, did we no, I screwed the, up, man. Oh, don't, don't even worry. Well, all right. Well, anyway, yeah, we can talk about him. I just thought that you know, he was a very good manager, very good talker, but especially with the four horsemen, you know, late 85, when they transitioned him away from you know, the guys like Black Bart and Thunderfoot and, and Landell, and they put him with Blanchard and the Horsemen, and they got him out of the 1976 tuxedos and put him in the business suit. I thought he was the perfect corporate weasel, you know, yes. to manage the Horsemen. And just rarely has a, a manager fit so well with his charges, especially Tully, you know, and really it was just JJ managing Tully at first, and it kind of evolved into him managing the entire group. But I thought he just did a great job there. And he was great as a manager that would just come out and occasionally he'd raise his voice, but he was not screaming and shouting. He did not come off like the stereotypical pro wrestler, pro wrestling manager guy. He looked more like a, a normal, real person, I guess, than you're, you're used to seeing in wrestling, especially at that time. And he just did a, a great job. And for that matter, in his sort of earlier incarnation in Florida, you know, the, the saga of the family and him uh, getting lost in the forest and saying that the rumor that I was bitten by a, a snake and then the snake died is not true. And saying it with such earnest sincerity, you know, he did a great job. J.J. Dillon, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. I met him briefly twice, but he's pretty awesome. I agree with you, and I, I apologize if I have used the word role too much in the last two weeks, but J.J. had that role in The Four Horsemen, and he played it to the T. I remember he did an interview once where he's like, oh, and I go into the bank, and as soon as the bank manager sees me, the banker runs out and shakes my hand. That's how important I am. He wasn't a typical pro wrestling manager. The shoes fit him perfectly as the guy who was the head honcho of the Four Horsemen. And make no mistake, he was a very important cog in that machine. Absolutely. And you, when you think about who else was in Crockett at the time that he crossed paths with, Cornette, who was great in his own right. Paul Jones, not as great. Paul Lee came in. And thinking about other guys, nobody else that was in that promotion could have taken his spot in the Horseman and have it work 
even remotely as well. That was a case where he was absolutely the right guy. Even Heenan. I mean, Heenan was just too much of a clown. And J.J. occasionally played the fool, but he was never a clown. No. No, he wasn't. And one thing I, I have written down, he was a very unappreciated in the sheets in the 1980s, I feel like, because I thought, and his name is coming up, I thought Jim Cornette was better than J.J. Dillon. And that's really an unfair matchup to put him against. Like, Cornette did his thing, and J.J. did his thing, and it worked. But there was always some resentment, and I felt it too. They did a match at the December 1988 Clash of the Champions where it was Ric Flair and Barry Windham against the Midnight Express, uh, Lane and Eaton. And the match was booked so that it looked like J.J. Dillon, who we didn't know it yet but was on his way out, was a better manager than Jim Cornette, and there was some resentment over that. Yeah, yeah. It's You can have, I'm trying to think of a good example here, you can have Kareem and Magic on the same team, and they're different types of players, and you can have Jim Cornette and J.J. Dillon both in Crockett for years, and it can work because they're completely different types of managers, and therefore you're not just having the same manager twice. Exactly. That is an excellent point. There are different types of managers. As we stated, there's you know the grizzled old veteran like Fred Blassie or Harley Race, and then there's the wimp with a big mouth like Jimmy Hart and Jim Cornette. And then you had J.J. Dillon, who was kind of in the latter role, or the former role, excuse me, He was a former wrestler, but he transitioned well into managing in the storyline itself. Yeah, and he was never, you know, unlike Harley Race, who was, you know, one of the greatest of all time as a wrestler, both as, you know, a a worker and also, you know, being the NWA world champion so many times. Though J.J. Dillon, you know, he was a good wrestler. He main evented in some territories. You know, he was lower down in some others. And but he was never like a huge star as a wrestler. And he was never a guy that. You, know, you think about as being synonymous with a particular territory to where his wrestling career would overshadow him as a manager. He was able to carve out a managerial career that you know stood on its own and, and would even if there wasn't a wrestling career behind it, whereas you can't really mention Harley Race, the manager, without thinking about Harley Race, the wrestler. I remember the Baptor magazines ran a column when Sir Oliver Humperdinck was managing in Central States, and he had J.J. Dillon as one of his protégés in this group. I can't even remember who else was in it. Yeah, I'm not sure who he would have had. I'm trying to think. I think Mr. Pogo, maybe, and that's all I can remember. Yeah, it might be an era that, that's sort of an era there that has has passed me by. You know, you hear Central States, you reflexively think, you know, Bulldog Bob Brown, Rufus R. Jones, but there's like whole blocks of that history that kind of aren't really secondhand. If anyone has a copy, I think it's The Wrestler, and I think it was like January or February edition 1982. If you have that, please scan it and put it up on the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page. All right, where are we? Number five. Who did you have as number five, Max? Let's see. Dylan was my number five. So okay, I think who New was York. your number four? All right, my number four was Captain Lou Albano. That's three that we've had the same guy listed, ranked at the same place. Yeah, you know, Lou was... Again, a guy that the bulk of his heel run, I didn't experience firsthand, but then he was able to, luckily through the magic of YouTube, go back and, and see, and I got to see him heal it up in, uh, in, you know, in 84 when the WWF expanded. But another one of those guys who's just a great scumbag, great sleazeball, somehow he just, everything, even if what he said didn't always make sense, the delivery was so great that you can see why people just wanted to see him get beaten to a pulp by the baby faces on a regular basis. And he wouldn't let himself get pinned. 
But, you know, when it was time for him to sell and bleed and just generally get his butt handed to him, he always was very giving. And I thought that he did a, a great job. And you know, if they'd left him as a heel longer than they did, he probably would have lasted longer. But apart from falling out, I believe with the McMahons, the babyface manager only has a, a certain shelf life before it doesn't work anymore. I agree with you. My observation on Albano is this. Well, number one, he would be ranked way higher if we were including the 70s. And Max, like you said, he came across as this believable guy who would like find the Samoans and exploit them. He came across as just this guy you believed would be a pro wrestling manager out there, you know, doing plane reservations and finding talent and just being a real lowlife. I believed all of it. It's funny you mentioned that about him exploiting the Samoans. There's actually a, a promo oh, yeah. up on YouTube from about 1980 with, uh, I don't know where Sika was. It's him, Afa, and Vince. It's just a generic promo, probably one of those that they would send to a market that wasn't getting uh, a card that month. And, you know, Lou basically all but admits right on the air that you know, he's cheating the Samoans out of money, joking to Vince. You know, they don't even know how much money they make and talks about how, you know, the, uh, Samoans are driving around in stripped down Chevys with no air conditioning and he's driving a Mercedes and just <laughs> laughing about it. And the whole joke being that off is right there, but he doesn't understand English and has no idea that his friend Captain Lou is ripping him off. It was one of the great moments in pro wrestling history. I remember watching that. It was on WOR and I was watching the midnight show of that, just laughing hysterically. At that moment, I finally like got Lou Albano. He was phenomenal. I mean, he was only around, I mean, he was around for a long time. He was around seven and a half years of the 80s. He was not as good in the 80s as he was in the 70s, but he was still, I mean, the, the top heel in the WWF for how long? Four years of the 1980s. And when they turned him, I mean, I'll never forget it. I'm watching TNT, the end of 1984. And Lou Albano is reading a Christmas poem to two children who are sitting there facing Lou Albano so their backs are to the camera. And Albano finishes his Christmas poem, and the two kids turn around, and they've got, like, fake Captain Lou Albano beards. And I, I just remember that moment. I'm like, no, they cannot be turning him. No way. And within a couple of weeks, they did the angle at Madison Square Garden where Piper broke the plaque over his head. And incredibly, Lou Albano was now one of the good guys. I don't know if this is true or not, but it's been said over the years that the British Bulldogs, I think Dynamite Kid actually said it, without Lou Albano, the British Bulldogs would have never gotten over. Yeah, I think they were very talented, but the WWF has always been a heavy interview-oriented promotion. and. Those guys, I mean, there's just no other way to say it. They just could not talk. Davy Boy got better and better as time went on. Once he started doing, you know, work on his own, especially when he turned heel, you know, something kind of unlocked for him as a, as a heel when he turned in 95. But Dynamite, you know, not much of a, a speaker. They needed somebody to do it for him. And if it wasn't going to be Lou, it was going to need to be somebody else. Because, yeah, I can't see them really getting it done on their own. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, they, I think they would have been fine. I think they would have been above like a Killer Bees level, maybe same as the Heart Foundation level. But I do think Albano gave them that extra little something that got them over. And yeah, you know, right after they won the titles, Vince decided he'd finally had enough of Captain Lou Albano <laughs> after having to deal with him for 12 years and showed him the door. Yeah, that was it. And at that point, Captain Lou as a baby face had kind of 
it kind of run its course. You know, if they weren't going to turn him back again, I don't really know what they could do with him at that stage. No, that's a really good point. I think it would have been very hard for them to turn him back. This is once again just my theory that when they announced Captain Albano's retirement and they threw the cake in his face and all that good stuff, to me that was Vince McMahon like committing to, okay, after all the times I've taken this guy back, he can't come back now. Yeah, yeah. Back then, the whole retirement thing, and granted, it was about to, at least in the WWF, get abused, you know, with Roddy Piper retiring at WrestleMania three, and then, you know, two years later, he's already back as a regular. But fans, the retirement thing in wrestling had not been so overdone at that point that fans automatically didn't believe it and smelled an angle if somebody mentioned it. You know, so if you said, hey, Captain Lou's retiring, the fans really believe, wow, this is it, Captain Lou's going out. And I don't think Captain Lou was as old as we thought he was, but people just aged differently and faster back then. And Lou was quite the drinker, so I'm sure that helped it along. But he came off as much older and as a guy who, even compared to 85, by 86, he seemed much older. I think of him back in like 76 and then like what he was like in like 80, 81. He aged a lot in those five years. And yeah, I think he continued to age quickly. One thing about Albano, for a long time, he was very unpopular in the, you know, quote unquote, smart fan community. And that's because, you know, by the time the the late 80s rolled around, I mean, Albano was a bit of a pain in the ass and a big embarrassment anytime he got in front of a camera, like, you know, screaming and, and not letting anyone talk and insisting that pro wrestling was real and that Vegas had a line on Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant, so that proves that pro wrestling's real. And, you know, but now that that has kind of faded into the sunset, I think he's got a lot more support now. I mean, he recently was inducted into the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, which I thought from day one was a glaring omission. Yeah, you know, I think some of it was that, like you said, you know, he's going on these, you know, the Donahue show and these other shows, and he's rattling off all the crazy cliches and just generally trying to be too much of a pro wrestling gimmick in a situation that didn't call for it. And then he, kind of became like the guy that wouldn't leave you know he did the stuff with uh the abrams uwf and it was hard to take him seriously running down the wwf when he was in that circus and i think also as well that granted there were there were tape traders and the, and the fans that developed the, the negative attitude towards him i'm sure were you know watching the tapes but my impression of the 80s sheet reading smart fan is that work 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 action 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 and they were far less concerned with storylines and angles and wacky characters. And yep. so Albano just didn't fit that mindset of what wrestling should be. They, it was very much a, you know, we want all Japan. We want new Japan kind of a, a thing here in America, but maybe that could work now, but I don't think that would have worked then. There was a great and now forgotten gathering of fans, you know, me and my friends and whoever we went to Memphis in 1988 Then we went to Philadelphia, February of 1989, and I remember specifically on this trip, there was a rumor going around that the NWA was interested in Captain Lou Albano, and I cannot tell you how mortified this group (laughs) of fans were over such a suggestion. And I, like a complete idiot, said, well, maybe it would work if he was a heel. And I I practically got booed out of the room just for saying that. And (laughs) it it wouldn't have worked as a heel. You know, that was just me reacting to this rumor from a credible source 
that I had just heard. And it's like, you know, no, it wouldn't have, have worked in any way, shape or form in the NWA in 1989. And I'm glad that never happened. Yeah, I'm not sure it even would have worked in the WWF by then. It might have circa 86 or so when the WWF of 86 wasn't the WWF of 83, but it still kind of looked and felt like it a little bit if you held it at the right angle. But by 89, the WWF was a totally different situation and it, it wouldn't have worked there. And as for the NWA, he didn't have the, apart from the fact that he was washed up, you know, he didn't have the connection with the fans. And the fans that turned up in the Northeastern markets, for the most part, were looking for him for nostalgia. There was no role for him. Exactly. I, you know, and that's the thing. He had a great, great run in the WWF. But by 88, 89, which is the time frame we're talking about, he was washed up. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean, but he was washed up. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it happens. I mean, we all can remember, you know, Steve Carlton with the Giants and the Twins or you know, Tony Dorsett with the Broncos. You know, at a certain point, even the greats kind of run out of gas and it's time for it to be over. Uh, I could talk all day about Steve Carlton's uh, the end of his career when even Michael Hayes was making fun of him on, on UWF TV. <laughs> I'll just say this. And I'll leave it alone. I think guys have to have that. They have to have that belief in themselves. That, no, I'm not finished. I'll never be finished. No, Carlton could not get anyone out for years, but he was just that determined. And I think that's what made him into the great Steve Carlton. And that's what also made him kind of an embarrassment in the middle 80s. Yeah, yeah. He sometimes guys just stayed too long. And that was a, a classic example of a guy that for his own reputation needed to stop. Yeah, uh, <laughs> From what I understand, Carlton was still contacting teams after he had been released for the last time and just no one was interested. But anyway, we're going to stick to wrestling, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, folks, Lou here. As you can tell, Max and John had a lot to say about their top 10 managers of the 1980s. So we're breaking it into two parts. Come back next week for part two. We now return to our regular programming already in progress. I want to thank everyone for listening. If you are interested, this podcast has a Facebook group, Stick to Wrestling. It's easy to find. Bunch of cool guys talking about wrestling. Let me see. You can follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam. Follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. I don't always stick to wrestling, but I usually stick to wrestling. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, for all the fine work he does. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Stay safe out there. This concludes our podcast day.